Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Antonio Neves, and welcome to episode 39 of the Best Thing Podcast. On this episode, I have a deep conversation with Samson Styles. Samson Styles is an award-winning journalist. He's a documentary filmmaker, and we worked together years ago in New York City. And in this episode, Samson talks about a powerful lesson that he learned while he was serving time in prison that transformed his life for the better, that allowed him to become the award-winning journalist, the uh, teacher, the documentary filmmaker that he is today. I promise you, you are going to love this episode. Before we dig into this episode, I would love to hear from you. If there are topics you would like me to cover, if there are guests you would like me to have, send me a text message at 310-564-7124. That link is in the show notes. Send me a text message. I would love to hear from you. Also, if you've been going through the motions in life, you feel like you've been just living on cruise control and you've been living on autopilot and you no longer want to do that, you want to instead live life on purpose I invite you to join my Stop Living on Autopilot mini course. This powerful three-part video series is getting amazing feedback from people all across the world. It's free. All you have to do is hit the link in the show notes, give me your email address, and voila, you will get those lessons directly to your inbox. The Stop Living on Autopilot mini course is a game changer. Okay, without further ado, let's get to episode 39 of the Best Thing Podcast with Samson Styles. Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where we talk to thought leaders, creatives, authors, and entrepreneurs about how sometimes the best thing to happen to you is the most unexpected. Welcome your host, Antonio Neves. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where I talk to people about the best thing to happen to them that doesn't include the traditional markers of success. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm a speaker, author, and coach. And each week I bring on a new guest who has a powerful story to tell that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. This week's guest is someone I met when we both worked at BET Networks in New York City, and he's someone that I've always been extremely impressed with. Samson Styles is an award-winning journalist, a documentary filmmaker, whose work has appeared on top networks, including BET and Revolt. As a former BET News correspondent and with his unique perspective, Samson has covered a wide range of issues from gun violence to politics to voting rights. Samson's acclaimed documentary, Killing Beef, tells his compelling story of recovering from a near-fatal shooting. Now, prior to his work as a journalist, Samson served seven years in prison, and during this time, Samson's interest in writing developed. After his release from prison, Samson began his work as a documentarian. Today, Samson owns and runs the production company J-City Enterprise with his wife. Samson also teaches documentary filmmaking to at-risk teens in underserved communities belonging to alternative to incarceration programs in Brooklyn, New York. Samson Styles, welcome to the best thing. Uh, thank you, man. What an introduction. <laughs> hey, it's all true. I, I want to start with this question right here. Uh, first, it's good to connect with you after so many years uh, since we last worked with one another in New York City. 
But one thing I want to ask you is I follow you on social media and I love following you on social media. And one of the main reasons, Samson, I like following you is because straight up on Instagram, I can feel a joy coming from you. When you share messages, you share real talk, but also I feel this this joy, this appreciation for life. And though I didn't know you extremely well when we worked together, I can't say I, I saw that back then. I'm curious if you could talk about the joy that shows up in social media and, and how you you know share messages with the world. Um, man, that's that's deep because you know everyone says that man from people that was with me in the streets to people that's uh, that was with me professionally when I transitioned. And um, what it is is that I'm just happy to not be in that lifestyle. Like that, the street lifestyle is, it's um, stressful, man. You know, you always have to look over your shoulder, not only about the police, you always have to wonder really about, you know, possibly getting a bullet in your head, uh, someone setting you up, uh, dealing with the wrong people. Uh, you know, now look at it now, that was so much of the norm for me before, for 36 years of my life, really. Not saying 36 years, but you could say... 26 years because I got into crime maybe at 10, 11 years old. I started and I, I was like a criminal ever since, you know, until I transitioned and transformed my life in 2006, really. Well, 2004, once I came home from prison. But um, so I'm just happy, man. I got a good wife. I got a good, uh, you know, support system. My, my children have something that you could be proud of. And um, I'm just leaving a, a nice legacy, man. You know, before I go out, I'm going to have more good to be talked about than bad. So I'm just happy, man. I like to hear that. Sometimes I look at your Instagram and I see you and your wife dancing on there. I'm like, oh man, this dude going to make me have to step it up tonight when I go inside the house because he's. I see all that joy. Just briefly, you talked about that lifestyle and you, you're born and raised uh, in Brooklyn. And nowadays, especially when we look at the, the news, Ham, uh, Samson, and we read newspaper articles, I think all we think about is hipster uh, Brooklyn. It has a certain image out there. You got coffee and different products named after Brooklyn. But there's another Brooklyn as well uh, that people really don't talk about. I know you spent a lot of time in your upbringing in Brownsville, New York, and also East New York. For people who have no idea about the other Brooklyn, if you if I can call it that, could you give me an idea of what it was like growing up where you grew up? Well, you know, I grew up in Pink Houses Projects and Brownsville Projects, both are notoriously known for causing havoc, um, crime written, and that's just basically the norm. So the conditioning, for the most part, when I was coming up, I'm not saying that that's how it is now, but pretty much a lot of it is still like that. It's a criminal element and just getting over to survive. You know, a lot of the... A lot of the things that are stereotypical is actual fact. You know, um, most fathers were missing from the homes when I was growing up, um, even though I had a two-parent household. But most, uh, once I got older, I started thinking, I'm like, wow, you know what? Dang, I was one out of maybe three or four people I knew that had a mother and father in the house. You know, it's like, oh, wow, that wasn't normal the way I, I had it. So... You know, impoverished area, uh, a lot of food stamps and government assistance, even though my family wasn't on that. But it was just a very depressing area, you know, full of depression, drug use, people trying to medicate, self-medicate, 
um, people trying to get money and, and what we thinking or what we were thinking that was money back then. It's like, yo, those, that's really peanuts. But what it is, you're so impoverished, that little bit extra seems like it's a lot. And you notice what people will do for that money. Um, and it's, it's just a it's just a grimy place, man. And not saying that everybody that comes from there is grimy, but it's just the atmosphere, period. It's, it's real grimy. I like that you bring up the distinction that not everyone that comes from there is grimy. I think sometimes we hear about places and we, we make an, a, an assumption that because they're from this place, they must be a certain way. And that 100% isn't the case. I also love the work you're doing today because you're working with, quote unquote, at risk youth, who sometimes I like to frame as high opportunity youth as well. I think we can look at someone as at risk or we can use the exact same language as high opportunity as well. So I'm curious. I mean, you're you're a storyteller. And that's one thing I loved about you is that when we work together at BET, we come from different backgrounds and we probably looked at stories a little bit differently. Could you tell me how your upbringing and maybe even your experience in prison shaped how you look at stories? Because I'm guessing your vantage point is a lot different. And also one thing I have to acknowledge you for is that you were able to tell stories, frankly, and get access to places and access to people that I probably wouldn't have been able to get access to. You were able to have immediate trust, clout in different communities, et cetera. So I'm just curious about your approach uh, to storytelling. I think uh, what makes my approach a little bit more unique is that growing up the way I did, I learned to be a chameleon from the streets, uh, learning how to get along with people in the streets and me being of the streets, then learning how to turn it off and on because my, my mother, you know, she's educated. My father's educated. So I knew how to act when we got in um, different circles and turn it off and, and be very deceivable. You know, someone will look at me and say, oh, man, you don't look like what you like what I heard about. You, you know, like I, I was expecting somebody look that looks different than you, you know. When I approach a story, it's like I could kind of think for everyone. Like a lot of people, they can't think for the street side. They can't think for the deprived side. They can't think for that hustler, you know, on the corner side. But I know how he thinks about politics. I know how he's thinking about religion and, you know, respect. And there's a difference between, you know, uh, cultures and not just races, because there's different cultures within a race. You know, you got the culture of the haves the cultures of the have-nots, the culture of the, the in-between, you know, you have cultures of lifestyle, gay, straight, you know, so there's, it's, it's not like we're one-dimensional. And a lot of people approach stories just from their side. So they don't try to really understand what someone else is thinking. So I think that's what make it, that's what makes my style of storytelling unique because I, I could kind of ask the questions for everyone and answer the questions for everyone. Yeah, you definitely show up with a lot of empathy as well. Like you said, an understanding for all sides. And a lot of people straight up, as you just mentioned, can't thank for the quote unquote the street side, if you will. And I think a lot of people have to remember, especially those news junkies, whether you're watching Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, I don't think people see the bias. I can I can see so many stories probably the same way you see stories and they think they're telling a good story. But, you know, there are a lot of questions that were not asked, not because this reporter is necessarily malicious or a bad person, just because they didn't know any better. Like they they, they don't have experiences like you had or like I had, et cetera. So uh, what a great reminder for people just to remember when you watch the news, just just be careful what you immediately say that's right or wrong. Briefly, I'd like to talk about we mentioned in the introduction, Samson, your 
your acclaimed documentary, I mean, Killing Beef, which is, I believe it's won awards. It's been broadcast on national television. You're doing screenings of this bad boy in a variety of places. Could you briefly tell us a little bit about, about Killing Beef? Yeah. Well, Killing Beef is uh, a documentary that chronicles a part of my life and use that as the microcosm into the macro of gun violence, the the uh, the pandemic of gun violence that permeates our communities, the Black underserved communities as a whole. So that documentary, it's not just um, a story of redemption and what I've went through and reconciliation of what I've went through personally, but it also gives the reasons the causes and effects and the solutions to the gun violence that exists within our communities. And the history lesson from beginning of when did this start in our communities? Why had, why is it you know, so much present in our communities? Um, what are people doing to decrease the gun violence? Like, so, you know, it, it's a history lesson. I mean, from everything from the great migration, um, speaking about how black People fled and from the South because, you know, we were being oppressed and how we came to these northern cities with nothing and and how having nothing, what it will basically, the survival instinct that come out of you would be basically, I'm going to take what I need to eat. If I'm hungry and you have a crumb, I want half of that crumb if my stomach is, is rumbling. And it's not only us. Um, we showed that also these northern cities that was occupied by maybe Irish or Jewish or Italians before Black people came and populated it, they had the same problems. It was the same violence and stuff that was going on there. So no violence and gun violence in the Black community. It's really not a, a Black-on-Black issue. It's a poverty issue. And that you never heard of Italian Italian on Italian crime. This needs to stop. But most Italians, they kill Italians. Most Italians, they're not killing other races. Most Asians, they're not killing other races if you look at murder. Because familiarity has a lot to do with conflict. You're usually in conflict with somebody that you know. This is barely random. And, you know, and you mainly know and hang around uh, the people that is the same race as you. I have to mention that a, a poignant and important part of the documentary as well is that uh, what we haven't shared, Samson, is that you were shot and multiple times and there's you could have not. We may not have been having this conversation. You you almost didn't make it. And not only did you not almost make it when you were shot, but in the documentary, you actually have a conversation. You meet up with the person who shot you. Right. And you didn't And you didn't show up with beef. From right. what I gather, you showed up with compassion. Right. We, we, that's what killing beef is a double entendre. It's killing beef, you know, conflict is, is dead in the conflict. Like as far as, you know, um, the guy that shot me, you know, we show it in the doc. We was able to be able to capture that rare moment. I don't think you'll ever see or not now. You won't see another documentary that's even like that, that you got two street guys and one shot the other and, you know, and when he comes home, um, they join forces because they're trying to get a message to the kids. And it's not like me and this guy, it may look like on the screen that we were like, oh, we just became buddies after that. But it wasn't. We, we only got together to talk to these kids. And that's one thing we had in common. And we had to slowly get to 
feeling comfortable around each other. And to the day, our families still don't speak to each other because, you know, our families knew each other and were very close with each other before the incident. So still a lot of healing uh, that needs to be done. But we were able to show when we used to go talk to these kids that's, you know, in alternative to incarceration programs, it was very effective, man, because they knew, like, you know, you have some dudes that come and talk to them and the kids may look at them like they're corny. I know I was in juvenile detention centers when I was younger and you could be delivering the same message that I have to give to them, but they're not going to listen to someone that, that didn't live the life that they lived or that they could respect, that lived the life that they could respect. And, you know, they'd be apprehensive to take a message from that person. So when me and, and the guy, the character, you know, and the doc, his name is Smoke, when we spoke to these kids, it hit them, man. Like, it was very effective. Like, kids that may have been, you know, not asking questions, just wanted to get it over with, they were highly intrigued and wanted to stay in touch with us. And, you know. Uh, Samson, let's get into the question, man, of the best thing. Uh, talk to people about what's one of the quote unquote best things that happened to you that may not show up on your resume or, or, or bio that has had a profound impact on, on who you are today? While I was in prison in New York State doing a bid, I had gotten uh, a warrant detainer sent to me from the U.S. Marshals. So they had a federal detainer on me for something that happened in Ohio. It wasn't drug related. It was like a money crime that I didn't even realize was a crime. But 10 days after they served the warrant, they came and got me from the state prison. And then I got transferred on the con air and, 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 you know, flew, had to fly to um, Oklahoma city from Oklahoma city. Then they flew me to Ohio where I had the case and I had to sit there for 10 months. And while I'm, you know, uh, going through the process of, of seeing how much extra time I'm about to get now. Right. And during that process, before that happened, I was kind of cool with the time I had. And I, I still, my business, my street business was still running while I was still in prison. And I was like, okay, I'm coming home to some money and, you know, I, I'll be good. It didn't really hit me basically like, yo, you have to leave this all the way alone. Right. So I, I knew I was going to come home. I had some money and I pretty much wasn't hardly touching anything. And, you know, it was like a mach oil machine already running for me. But by the time the Fed snatched me up, because everybody thought I was coming home at a certain time, that put an additional 21 months on. And through that time, I lost everything. I, everything, like, by the time I came home, I came home to zero. And within that time, I got to see how the federal prison works. So it was very tough for me going through the 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 federal system because I already thought I had time that I was going to do in the state. I'm getting I'm getting released at a certain time, so now I know I got 21 months added, and in turn that caused me to lose everything. While I was in Ohio, the conditions and um I'm talking maggots coming out the showers. I mean it's so filthy. You got to jump in the shower in and out. It's like a little nozzle with a little drip of water really coming up. It was just extreme conditions, man. My skin broke out all over the place. Horrible medical. I mean, just everything that, that, you know. So from that, I was like, I was uncomfortable the whole time in there. You get visits, you know, my brother and them was coming to visit me. You get a 30 minute, uh, I think a week or maybe twice a week visit. 
Let me, let me interrupt real quick, because if I'm hearing you correctly, and prior to going to Ohio, you had done how many years? Uh, you already served how many years? Yeah, I was already served, like, I was two years in. You're already two years in, so you served two years, and all the people I've interviewed over the years, I, I you know prison isn't fun, but to hear you say you had already served two years and you went to a different prison, and the fact that you found that one even more uncomfortable is, is, is saying something in itself. Yeah, because I went from a prison to a jail. See, there's a difference. The county jail is different from the prison. Like that's like the county jail sometimes is made to make you cop out so you can have you up and get to prison because because the food isn't good. I mean, I mean, the food in prison isn't so good either, but it's better. It's when you have a better situation, you kind of appreciate that. Just like when you're in prison and you get in trouble in prison, you go to the shoe or to the hole. Right. So now the, your conditions are going to be worse in prison and you want to get out of the hole so that you can get back to regular population. This for me was me getting I was already in prison. I was comfortable because I know I had a release date. I'm getting ready to get out in, in a little while. And I basically had a format that I was used to. So now this broke, this disrupted my whole format. And now I'm off to some place where I don't even know the people like that. When I got in Ohio, you know, I got to like, I got to figure this out. I'm in the um, county jail going back and forth to court. So then I finally get the time that I'm getting. My skin had broken out terribly. I get back to the prison to finish my bid in the state prison. After I finish that, then I get shipped to um, a federal prison that was close to home, Fort Dix Correctional Facility. So when I get there, I'm bumping into guys that I knew that I grew up with that I'm seeing, you know, that got 22 years and 40 years and, you know, like a lot of time. Right. So that was eye opening because I know I may have done just as much dirt as these guys, but I haven't gotten caught in the way that they did. And I know I'm about to come home. They didn't know. I didn't, you know, never really supposed to tell anybody that you don't have that much time. And meanwhile, they got decades to do you know it it, it it could hurt their feelings which ain't cool and then it could cause problems on you and something could happen so that maybe now you won't come home because somebody agitates you or they're going to mess with you in a way that you have to defend yourself and by defending yourself you may catch another charge or a new charge so it's a very it's a very delicate situation to be in yeah the day before i was going to get released one of uh the guys he was down with a crew that was kind of enemies of mine when we were in the streets and um, he's older than me. And he, he called me and said, yo, come to the yard, man. Come walk around the yard. I'm, I want to talk to you before you, you know, before you leave. So I said, okay, you know, I'm thinking maybe he want me to get in touch with some people for him or, you know, give a message to some people or whatever. And so when we was walking around the yard, he said, man, what you going to do when you go home? And I said, um, I said, man, I don't know, man, but I just know I'm not going to be broke. Because that's all I knew. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be broke. I don't know. And he said, yo, he said, let me show you my paperwork. So he showed me his paperwork. And it had the earliest release date was 2022. Wow. It was earliest release. And this was in 2004. So he said, look at my release date. So th that means that the release date was 18 years later from me getting released. Right. He said, look at my release date. He said, this is if I be good. Like, this is the earliest day I'm going to get released. He said, my only dream is to get released and die because I don't want to die in here. Mm. 
He said, so I'm trying to live just to be free and knowing I'm, I'm not going to have that many years left once I get out, but I'd rather die outside than dying here. He said, that's my biggest nightmare. He said, yo, you got a, you got a shot, man. He said, you know, I know you done did as much dirt as we did, man. But, you know, he said, but you have a shot. And he said, yo, man, don't come back in here, man. He said, whenever you think about doing something, he said, think about this paper I'm showing you, this release date I'm showing you. That stuck with me. Samson, I got to ask, when I hear that, how rare is that? Because you talked about you typically don't want people to know when you're going to get released because, like you said, that can bring up jealousy, cause some tension, et cetera. How rare was it that you had this dude being willing, knowing that he had many, many years left, to come at you with that, frankly, that message of positivity, optimism, and hope? It was just life-changing. And to this day, like I say that story, you know, it made me more patient because I was very impatient when it comes to money or, or making money. I was used to getting money fast. And I'm talking, you know, like I didn't wait for, I didn't wait for money. You know, I didn't know anything about going the legal route, uh, getting a regular job and, and saving that way. I knew I was always a street entrepreneur. Right. So, so him, hitting me with that message and me seeing the people with all that time and knowing that little taste of the feds that I've got, you know, um, it, 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 it rang because I know I've seen other guys in there that, you know, that I was in the street with and I'm seeing what type of time they got, but he was the one that actually said, look, man, you know, so his voice rang. So then another thing, so that was one thing that gave me patience and was like life changing for me. So I knew I had to have patience and, you know, if I had to wear the same clothes for a while, that's what I have to do. If I have to live in um, conditions that I wasn't used to really living in, you know, that's what I would have to do. I just had to sacrifice and be patient. But then when I came home, um, I went through a phase that people were, were used to me basically getting money. So when they see me down, they kind of they, they kicked me when I was down. So, and, and a lot of family members included. I mean, people I never thought would do that, you know, and not to even mention which family members, but very close family members as well showed, and, and it was like no support. And um, meanwhile, I was always the go-to cousin, nephew, brother, or whatever, or, you know, to get a loan, or not really a loan. If you needed something, they knew they could call me. So that was disheartening. And I felt like I was on the island all by myself, but it helped me because it really showed me who was who, what can potentially happen, and that their expectations was that I'm going to just do something and wind up coming back to jail again anyway. And I was like, nah, I'm going to show y'all. Y'all going to wish y'all didn't treat me like that, you know? As I hear that, I think about the whole notion that a lot of us can experience, and maybe not to the extent that you did, but what do you do when people don't support you? I mean, so many people are experiencing that right now in their in their lives. I'm curious for you when you experienced that, when people didn't frankly respect you the way they used to, what did you have to do? Did you have to create boundaries with these folks? Did you have to create distance? What allowed you to continue to move forward? Because I'm sure it wasn't easy. These folks that you looked after for so long, they knew you always had their back. Now they were coming at you different. What did you do just as a as a man to step forward? And I'm sure we always take things personal, but not allow that to bring up the wrong energy and feelings. Man, I, I prayed, first of all, you know, because I was hurt, man. So 
I prayed a lot and I also like conditioned myself to the point that I knew I didn't need anyone else. You know, I knew that what I had just been through, I was still humble, even though I was hurt, but I wasn't like angry because I knew that my freedom was the most important thing. And as long as I have my freedom, I'm gonna accomplish what I need to accomplish. You know, I'm like, y'all just don't know it. Y'all don't know what I'm getting ready to accomplish. And I didn't even know what was gonna happen, but I just knew something good was gonna happen because I'm always I was always a creative dude. Before I went in, I was doing music and um, you know, I was I was this close to putting out my album and I was with I know a lot of people say that, but I was surrounded around the right people. So it was definitely gonna happen for me. I was independent, you know, I was putting up my own money for, for everything. And um, I was getting ready to master P it. And, you know, it was getting ready to happen like that before I got that charge put on me and I had to go away for a little while. So I knew what I was capable of. And, and it didn't stop me four months after I came home. And after experiencing all of that, I still started to make a documentary. Another change that happened was that one of the guys that I used to do business with in the streets, a Colombian guy that, you know, that um, we used to do a lot of business and make a lot of money. When I came home, I, I could have gotten anything I wanted. As far as I could have jumped right back into what I was into with a, a, a 20, 30,000 advance. Like, here, go ahead, you know, start off, do your thing. But I asked him instead of that, I said, yo, I want to do a film. I said, I'll pay you the money back. You know, I don't know when. I don't know how this thing worked, but I want to do a documentary on these girls from around my way, blah, blah, blah. And um, he gave me the money. And after he gave me the money, he said, you know, you don't have to pay me back, man. He said, because, you know, he said, um, I respect that you're not trying to get back in the streets. And he said, you know, the information I knew, he could have he could have went away for a long time, which he didn't. So, you know, he was just appreciative to the type of loyal dude I was. And he said, yo, here, just do what you got to do. Man, th those people like that, I mean, I want to call them angels in many ways. I mean, listen, to society, we can judge what people are doing, et cetera, uh, decisions they've made in their life. That doesn't stop certain folks still from being angels to us. Um, this is my last question for you, Samson, as I listen to you share so much, and I really appreciate all you're sharing with the audience. And for me, frankly, as you continue to work today, and you tell these stories. I'm curious, the stories you tell and the work you're doing, mm. is Samson Styles? are you proving something to yourself or is your mission more so, it's more so for others, to show others there's another way, there's a, another path. When you think about that North Star that, that drives you today. Well, it's both because I have very high ambitions, man. Like, I'm like always almost underachieving where I set my goals because I set my goals so high. So people, a lot of times they look at what I'm doing and they, yo, you're doing all right, man. You, you know, but to me, I'm like, man, you don't know what goal I set. You know what I'm saying? I missed that goal right there. You know, okay. I hear you. But so I think that's what keeps me. Um, that's the drive that keeps me. And for always being around people that's doing more than what I'm doing, that, that pushes me. And I always want to be able to be morally satisfied. I don't want to compromise my morals. And in turn, that comes with helping the next generation or helping not even the next generation, you know, 
anyone that wants help that I could help, you know, like the mini documentary scripted content development class I'm running now, like a lot of people in that class are older people that want to get into documentary storytelling. And, and, you know, so I'm like, I'm welcome, welcome and all, because really it's hard to once you get a certain age and if you're not tech savvy and you're not um, basically up on the times, you could be lost very quickly, you know, and, um, and we in a society, unfortunately, that doesn't favor older people or middle-aged people. It's like, get out of here, old head. You know what I'm saying? And, and the younger people are not even really respecting them, but they in a situation that they can really be seniors soon. No no social security, really. What's going to be there for them? No five, they they trying to transition to see what they're going to they're gonna do. You know, so so our class is, is a nice mix. We have young people, we have millennials, we have generation what's that z's now and you know and and older people and and not no bit no baby boomers but for the for the most part it's a nice uh collaborative of different age groups that's in the class and they all want to learn so you know that's dope but so i always want to give back and be able to give back because the more you give back it sounds cliche but the more you give back actually really the more you give because people be watching you that People are watching you that you don't know are watching you. The time is right for, and I love it. You bring up a really good reminder, and this is great to end on, is that one, people are always watching. We may not know they're watching, but they're always watching. But also, we have to be willing to do the work when no one is watching. It's easy to to grind. It's easy to wake up early and do X, Y, and Z when people are watching you and patting you on the back and saying, good job. And we must be willing to do it when that fanfare is, isn't coming, when the quote unquote stands are empty at the game. Right. So Samson Styles, I can't appreciate you enough for being willing to make time today to share a small portion of your story. I really admire you, the work that you're doing. I'm excited for this audience to go to the show notes and learn more about you and your story, man. It's a powerful one. And I love how many people that you're inspiring. And I can't wait to see uh, the multiple deals you're going to be signing moving forward. All right. Take care, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Best Thing Podcast with Antonio Neves. Join us next week for more stories that'll help you see the world through a new lens. For more resources, go to theantonioneves.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.